Well, shifting gears a little bit, here we are in John 18. I was talking to uh, Stephen Hong, he's a senior uh, at UCSD, he was a member of our church for many years, and he's graduating this, uh, this spring, and I was talking to him this week, and he was telling me how, asked me what chapter of John we're on, and I told him John 18, he said, we started the Gospel of John when I was in high school, <laughs> and he's graduating from college, and we're still in the Gospel of John. Well, at least we're in John 18. We're not like John 8 or something. But Well, if uh, many Bible students have said that John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ, is the Mount Everest of the Gospel of John. If that is true, then John 18 and 19 is the Dead Sea. Mount Everest is the highest elevation in Asia at 29,028 feet. The Dead Sea is the lowest elevation, 1,312 feet below sea level, a difference of over 30,000 feet, over 5.7 miles difference. From the height of John 17, of Christ's God-exalting prayer, we make a quick, sudden, and deep descent into the valley of the shadow of death in John 18 and John 19. Gospel of John, Apostle John devotes two chapters to the betrayal, arrest, suffering, and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two chapters devoted entirely to our Lord's death. Our study this day won't, I doubt, we will not be able to get into the text itself. It's more of a primer, an introduction, if you will, to the cross of Christ, the subject of our Lord's cross. So to that end, we'd like to just read together John 18 and 19 together and begin our study of our Lord's death by reading John's account. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He. Judas, who betrayed Him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. So He asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of. Those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? Are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord? Or did others say say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So so do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. 
Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since, since it was a day of preparation, and so, the, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for, the, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We've just read two chapters entirely devoted to the cross of Christ. Here we find the climax of God's redemptive plan. The culmination of history is found here in these two chapters, the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ. It is so central to our faith that it is the singular symbol of our faith. John Stott, in his book, Cross of Christ, begins this way. He writes that every religion, every ideology has a symbol which faithfully represents a key feature of its beliefs or history. The lotus flower is associated with Buddhism. Because of its wheel shape, it is thought to depict cycle of birth, death, Emergence of beauty and harmony out of the muddy waters of chaos. Often the Buddha is portrayed as enthroned in a fully open lotus flower. Ancient Judaism used the star of David to represent their faith. Islam is symbolized by the star, crescent moon and the star. Secular ideologies of the century have also used universal symbols to identify and distinguish themselves. 
the Marxist hammer and sickle adopted in 1917 by the Soviet government represents industry and agriculture, signifies the union of factory workers and peasant farmers, the swastika of Nazi Germany, the crooked or broken cross, symbolized the Aryan race. Christianity is no exception in having a visual symbol. Early Christians used various symbols, various pictures and figures to avoid persecution, to identify themselves, to communicate with one another. The cross was at first avoided because of its direct association with Jesus Christ. So if you go to catacombs, even now in Rome, these burial sites where Christians hid to flee from persecution, where Christians hid to meet together for prayer and worship, you will find on the walls pictures that they drew to identify themselves as Christians. You'll find such symbols as a peacock symbolizing immortality. You'll find pictures of a dove pointing to Pentecost. You'll find a picture of an athlete's victory palm pointing to Apostle Paul's figures of speech. You will often find a fish, a picture, a simple picture of a fish, and not just because the disciples were fishermen, not just because in Matthew 4.19 Christ told them you'll be fishes of men, but mostly because only believers would know that ichthus, the Greek word for fish, was an acronym for Jesus Christos Theuhuyasoter, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. They would know that. And the fish was a popular symbol used by Christians to identify themselves and to describe, testify of their faith. During the second century, other symbols and pictures began to be prominently used by Christians. Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den, a shepherd carrying a lamb, raising of Lazarus, a popular one. Another one was Abraham killing the ram instead of Isaac. In addition, the Cairo monogram, the first two letters of the Greek word Christos, was a popular cryptogram used by believers. But one symbol by far was overwhelmingly used by believers more than any other. For believers, for Christians going through sufferings and persecutions, having their possessions confiscated, going into imprisonment, being tortured, and even martyred for the faith, one symbol, and symbol alone, was used to remind them of God's love and God's faithfulness. One symbol was used universally to testify and declare their faith in Christ. The chosen symbol was a simple cross. For true followers of Christ, these two bars intersected together had a very significant meaning for them. They chose this symbol to commemorate the central tenet of the Christian faith. They did not point to his birth or his youth. They did not use a symbol that pointed to his teaching or to his service. They did not use a figure that pointed to his resurrection or his reign nor his gift of the Holy Spirit. They chose the symbol that specifically highlights his substitutionary death on the cross. 
it is certain that at least from the second century onward, this simple pictorial symbol became the universal symbol embraced by all Christians throughout the world. If we understand historical context, it is quite surprising. Quite surprising when we consider the horror with which the crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world. Paul said it plainly. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. Foolishness to the Gentiles, to the Romans. The word Greek word is moriah, from where we get the word moronic. It is madness. It is insanity. It is sheer folly to them that we would worship a God had, hanging and would die on the cross. The most shameful, humiliating, excruciating mode of death. It is full, it's madness to them that we will worship Him, that we would boast in the cross. It was illogical, it was irrational, it was unbelievable. For crucifixion was the was by far the most barbaric way of executing someone. It is undoubtedly, as we well know, the most cruel method of execution ever practiced. For it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could often suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted this practice, it was so horrific so impulsive that they reserved it only for criminals convicted for of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery. And it was reserved only for slaves, foreigners, and other non-persons. Roman citizens, citizens were by and large exempt from crucifixion. Cicero, in one of his speeches, condemned it as, quote, a most cruel and disgusting punishment. A little later, he declared, quote, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him. What? There is no word fitting that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. End quote. This practice was so hideous and repulsive that he wrote elsewhere, quote, the very word cross should be removed from the, from the mind of a Roman citizen, removed from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Indeed, the mere mention of the word is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man, end quote. The, the Romans were repulsed by this. I mean, the Romans weren't known for their sensitivity, right? Their tenderheartedness. Their love for their fellow man. I mean, the, the gladiator games at, at the arena reveal their bloodthirsty nature. But even for such a culture, such a society, crucifixion was too horrible for, to be entertained in their thoughts. The Jews, on the other hand, were equally repulsed. But that visceral repulsion went beyond just the physical torture of the cross with the Jews, they were repulsed by crucifixion for a whole different reason. The Jews made no distinction between a tree and a cross, between a hanging and a crucifixion. 
they therefore automatically apply to crucified criminals the terrible statement of the law from Deuteronomy 21-23. Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Therefore, it was unconscionable for them that God's Son, that God's Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One of the Old Testament, could hang on a tree, would be crucified, would be cursed by God. Trifle, a Jewish leader, debated Justin the Martyr. And in that debate, when the, cross, the subject of the cross of Christ came up, Trifle's response was, I am exceedingly incredulous on this point. I have no words to talk about the cross. It's inconceivable for me. It's unacceptable that the Jewish Messiah would hang on a tree, be cursed by God. Therefore, we reject Jesus as the Anointed One. It was in that context that Christians chose the cross as their symbol to identify themselves and to testify of their faith. You would think they would, they would choose a more seeker-sensitive symbol, more culturally relevant, more um, you know, self-esteem-producing symbol that would really cater to the minds of the world, the Jews and Gentiles. But no, they held it close to their hearts. They were steadfast in the symbol of the cross. It tells us that to them, the cross was not a peripheral doctrine of the Christian faith. It was not a secondary belief for, for believers. It tells us that to them, to early Christians, the cross of Christ was central to their faith. And yet, what is so sad so tragic is that this truth is neglected by Christians today and is neglected by Christian churches. A doctrine that is much neglected by believers. Many today see no peculiar glory and beauty in the subject of Christ's cross. They think it painful, humbling, degrading. They want to turn away. Oh, the death of Christ, it is so depressing. It is unsophisticated. It's unseemly in our modern, techno-savvy, postmodern world. It is too disturbing. It doesn't promote good feelings. It doesn't help our self-esteem. It doesn't cause me to leave Sunday with a good heart. They do not see much profit in the story of his death and sufferings. They rather turn from it as an unpleasant thing. I believe such persons are quite wrong. I believe it is an excellent thing for us all to be continually dwelling on the cross of Christ. It is something that I look forward to for years. To spend months on John 18 and 19. To spend Sunday after Sunday after Sunday considering, meditating, praying over, laboring over the texts that highlight the death of our precious Lord it is a good thing for us to be reminded how our Lord was betrayed by Judas into the hands of wicked men. How they condemned Him with most unjust judgment. How they spat on Him, scourged Him, beat Him, and crowned Him with a crown of thorns. 
how they led him forth as a lamb to the slaughter, without his murmuring, complaining, or resisting. It is good for us to look at how they drove the nails through his hands and his feet. It is good for you and I to consider how they set him up on Calvary between two thieves. How they gambled for his clothes at the, at, the, at the foot of the cross. How his mom was there watching him die. It's good for us to consider how they pierced his side with a spear, mocking him as he suffered, bleeding until he died. It is a good thing. And I believe the Bible writers believe that as well. The crucifixion of our Lord is described four times over in the New Testament. There are very few things that all four Gospel writers describe. Generally, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe an event of Christ's life, John omits them. right? Because John's purpose in writing his Gospel was to complement the synoptic Gospels. So, Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke all wrote about the crucifixion of Christ. But John was adamant. John was committed to describe the death of our Lord. Spent two chapters concerning his betrayal, sufferings, and death. Because he's telling us this must not be overlooked. Because in the cross we see the wisdom of God, the power of God, our hope, our peace, our joy, our gladness, our comfort, and our consolation. Our Lord's death on the cross, again, is not a peripheral doctrine, secondary doctrine. It is central to our gospel. It is crucial. It is foundational to our faith. Godly pastors throughout church history agree. John Calvin wrote, quote, The Christian has insufficient time to master the other important sections of Christian doctrine. Let him at least have a firm grasp on the doctrine of the cross of Christ doctrine of Christ's death for this is the very heart and core of the Christian faith. P.T. Forsyth said, Christ is to us just what His cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what He did there on the cross. If you do not understand the cross, you do not understand Jesus Christ. Luther summarized his doctrine, his theology, as a theology of the cross. Luther saw the theology of the cross as the only correct way to view God, and the only way to correctly view the life of the believer. God came to the cross for man, God comes to man through the cross, and man in turn comes to God through the cross. Cross is the hub. The cross is the heart. It is the center. God reveals Himself through the cross. Christ came to die on the cross. And for us, we approach God through and through the cross alone. Emil Brunner applauded Luther's description of Christian theology as a theology of the cross. And he went on to write, The cross is the sign of the Christian faith. It is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The whole struggle of the Reformation, sola fide, sola gratia, sola dea gloria, sola scriptura, was simply the struggle for the right interpretation of the cross. He concluded, 
included. He who understands the cross rightly understands the Bible. He understands Jesus Christ. Let me just quote to you so many more men. I mean, just godly, Bible-loving pastors, students of Scripture, and how they cherish the cross, and how they saw the cross as central to our faith. Let me quote to you Samuel Zwemer. And he was not just a pastor. He was, they called him the apostle to Muslims. He labored in Arabia for 40 years. Many of his children died in the mission field. And he went, and he went because of the cross, and his message was the cross of Christ. Quote, he wrote, A missionary among Muslims to whom the cross of Christ is a stumbling block, and atonement is foolishness, is driven daily to deeper meditation on this mystery of redemption, and to a stronger conviction that here is the very heart of our message and our mission. If the cross of Christ is anything to the mind, it is surely everything, the most profound reality and the sublimest mystery. One comes to realize that literally all the wealth and glory of the gospel centers here. The cross is the pivot as well as the center of New Testament thought. It is the exclusive mark of the Christian faith. The more unbelievers deny its crucial character, the more do believers find in it the key to the mysteries of sin and suffering. We rediscover the apostolic emphasis on the cross when we read the gospel with Muslims. We find that although the offense of the gospel remains, its magnetic power is irresistible, end quote. Muslims are repulsed at the thought that one of their prophets would die such a heinous, heinous death. So they, they invented a whole doctrine that, that at the last minute Judas was placed on the cross instead of Jesus Christ because they think it's so unfathomable that the prophet would die in this manner. And he says, when you read the gospel with Muslims, they are offended, repulsed by this. And yet the magnetic power of the cross is irresistible few more quotes. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, said, At Christ's cross, Christians have had their pride broken, their guilt expunged, love kindled, their hope restored, and their character transformed. The great and pivotal need of every non-believer and the great need of every Christian who longs to live a life worthy of the gospel is the doctrine of the cross of Christ. Pastor John Piper put it this way, and only he can put it so powerfully. The cross is the blazing center of the glory of God. We talk about the glory of God. We love the glory of God. We live for God's glory. We want God to be glorified in us and in our lives, in our families, and in our church. Well, the blazing center of God's glory is the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we want to make our lives, if we want to not waste our lives, if we want to make our lives count, we must stare into the middle of that blazing sun and have the truth of Christ's cross burned in our hearts, burned in our minds. I quoted him 
a year, two years ago. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live and die for them. You don't have to know a lot to make a difference for Christ. But you do need to know a few things, a few great truths and be willing to live and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but people who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, Piper said, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ, you don't have to have good looks or riches, you don't have to go, ha, come from a fine family or a, or a fine school. But you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths and be set on fire by them. And the greatest truth of them all, the blazing center of the glory of God, is the cross of Christ. Piper continues, Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. If we would make much of God, we must make much of Christ. His bloody death is the blazing center of the glory of God. If God is to be our boast, what He did and what He is, in Christ, must be our boast as well. This is the heart and testimony of every true Christian. At one point, we were repulsed by the cross. We were made uncomfortable. We were embarrassed by it. We found nothing attractive, nothing lovely about the cross. It had no effect upon our hearts. And by God's grace, at one moment, we saw the cross and we saw our sins placed upon Him. We saw Him as the Son of God, holy and perfect, dying on the cross on behalf of our sins. And at that moment, as we trusted in Christ, the cross was beautiful. The cross was lovely. The cross was attractive to us. At that instant, we found joy over the cross or by which that is, not, that is now our singular boast. That is now our singular boast. That is why Christians live like we do. That is why we obey, obey God because to the cross our obedience is a joy. That is why we labor in ministry because ministry is not a burden. It is sweet because of the cross. Admissions it's not a call to suffering. It's a call to joy. You know, it's a call to a banquet with your most favorite food. You know, for me, it's Korean barbecue. It's like someone calling me to all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue. My heart is not burdened. Oh, man, I have to go. Man, I have to eat. Man, I have to partake of this. I hope it's not too long. No, I go. I hope it doesn't end. Right? I hope I save myself. I skip lunch, maybe breakfast, to prepare myself for such a sweet meal. 
But that is what ministry, evangelism, that is what missions is. That is why when we send out missionaries, we're Christians. There is a godly jealousy, right? a holy envy. As we send the Shems, the Jungs, the Denny's and the Lees, because we are jealous of the joy that they would experience in the mission field. For true Christians, Jesus Christ crucified is their joy and delight, their comfort and peace, hope and confidence, foundation and resting place. The cross of Christ is the ark and the refuge from the storm. It is the food and the medicine of every believer's soul. Followers of Christ echo the truth of the praise song, Thy Mercy. I was singing it this week. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from first to last, hath won my affection and bound my soul fast. Without Thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness my spirits revive, and he who first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I have found. For the Christian, we are never wearied about thinking about the cross meditating on the cross, preaching about the cross. We are never wearied about telling others about the cross. We're never wearied in sending people throughout the world to tell them about the cross. We rejoice to get together and to break the bread and drink the cup. Why? To remember the cross. We rejoice to hear testimonies about how the cross saved sinners. We rejoice to see baptisms, to see believers be baptized into the death of our Lord. The cross of Christ is our life. It is the source, foundation, and power of our new life in Christ. Without it, we are helpless and hopeless in our sins. But because of it, we have been set free set free from sin, set free from shame, set free from guilt, set free from the condemning power of the law, set free to live our lives, the glory of God, set free by the cross and for the cross. Let us consider our Lord's teaching ministry. Consider some passages and find that the cross must be central to our faith because The cross of Christ was central to Jesus Christ. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. For the third time, our Lord alluded to His death, prophesied of His death, and He said, We are going to Jerusalem. So the man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. Our Lord came for the cross. It was a voluntary incarnation. He was not a victim of a cruel crime. He came for the cross. Matthew 26, 2 again. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and then the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
Mark 9.31, Mark and Luke 9.44, all point that Christ's central aspect of his teaching was the cross. So much so that he considers it a distinguishing mark of discipleship. Matthew 10.35-39 For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a person's enemy will be those in his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his own cross, does not take his own mode of execution, deny himself, is not worthy of me. He says it again, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Matthew 16.24, Luke 9.23, Luke 14.27, all point to his call to disciples to take up their cross and follow after him. Apostles as well. The cross of Christ was central to their ministry. In Acts 2.22-24, the Pentecost sermon of Peter, when he declares the Jewish people, the leaders of Israel, he assigns them the crime of crucifying Jesus Christ. Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, and their response was, Brothers, we're cut to the heart. What shall we do? Acts 4.10, Peter again declared the crucifixion of Christ. Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, he placed the cross of Christ at the forefront of his message. Acts 4.10, 5.39, 10.39, 13.29. Look at Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified. We know that it is a stumbling block to Jews. We know that it is folly to Gentiles. But when I was with you, I resolved nothing, resolved to know nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. That is my message. That is my ministry. I know you don't want to hear it. I know it is repulsive. I know it is foolish to you. But only thing I know to be true is this death on the cross. 1 Corinthians 2 2. Philippians 2. What was on the mind of Paul? Philippians 2 5 through 11. The humility of Christ. How he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in likeness of men, but more than that, being found in human form, he humbled himself to the extent of being obedient to die. The point of death, even death on a cross. What was Paul's pursuit? Philippians 3, 8 through 11. I want to know him, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. I want to know Him. I want to share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Stephen Charnock wrote this about the Apostle Paul. 
Christ crucified is the sum of the gospel and contains all the riches of it, Paul was so taken with Christ that nothing sweeter than Jesus could drop from his pen and lips. It is observed that he wrote the word Jesus 500 times in his letters. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And last verse, Galatians 6.14 Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That was the boast, singular boast of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul had a lot to boast about. His many accomplishments, his pure lineage, his legalistic righteousness, his Phariseeism, and yet, he says, all of that is rubbish. All of that is scubalon. My only boast is the cross of Christ. We'll close with why we must fix our eyes squarely on the blazing center of the glory of God. I know it is difficult. As it is difficult for you to hear a message on the cross of Christ because it is so glorious, so holy, and we are so unholy. As it is difficult for you, it is much more difficult for me to study and preach. But we must, we must stop and look and dig deep and meditate upon the blazing center of the glory of Christ. First of all, as a church, because the cross is what separates our faith from all other religions. The cross is what separates us, separates our faith from all other religions. Other religions have laws and moral precepts like us. They have forms and ceremonies, rewards and punishments, but they have no cross. They have no Savior. They have no substitute. They have no forgiveness of sin. I remember witnessing to a professing Muslim who was a liquor store owner. And I said, you're a Muslim? Yeah. Well, so how are you doing in your Muslim faith? Not too good. Well, obviously, you own a liquor store. And look at those magazines that you're selling. Right? Look at the things that you're selling. I said, are you a practicing one? I said, I try my best. I said, do you realize that every day you're alive, that you, all you're doing is increasing in your sins? He says, I know. I know. Do you pray five times a day? Oh, no. Pray one time a day? Maybe. Right? So every day you live, you're just growing in your sinfulness. So what is your hope? He hopes in his hope. He has faith in his faith. He has nothing to hold on to in the Quran. All he has is himself. But Christians, we have the cross. We have our Savior who died on behalf of our sins. This is the crown and glory of the gospel. This is that special comfort which belongs to us alone. Secondly, the cross 
is the strength of a minister. The cross is the strength of a minister. Everyone who's in ministry, everyone who is teaching, everyone who is preaching, every pastor, this is a strength. Let me quote Pastor J.C. Rao. Quote, I for one would not be without it for all the world. Without it, I would feel like a soldier without arms, or an artist without his pencil, a pilot without his compass, like a laborer without his tools. Let others, if they will, preach the law and morality. Let others hold forth the terrors of hell and the joys of heaven. Let others drench their congregations with teachings about the sacraments and the church. Give me the cross of Christ. This is the only lever which has ever turned the world upside down and made men forsake their sins. And if this will not, nothing will. A man may begin preaching with a perfect knowledge of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, but he will do little or no good among his hearers unless he knows something of the cross. Never was there a minister who did much for the conversion of souls, who did not dwell much on Christ crucified. Luther, Rutherford, Whitfield, Machane were all most eminently preachers of the cross. This is the preaching that the Holy Ghost delights to bless. He loves to honor those who honor the cross. We must fix our eyes on the cross of the church because this is what separates us from all other faiths. This is the strength of every minister of the gospel. Thirdly, the cross is the secret of missionary success. It's the secret of of missionary success. Nothing but this has ever moved the hearts of unbelievers than the message of the cross. Hearts of every kind and every quarter of the globe all alike have felt the power of the cross. I've experienced it personally. I've had the privilege to preach the gospel, the message of the cross in Mexico and Japan, in China and Korea, in Russia, Kazakhstan, Ireland, and the Czech Republic. This past summer, I've seen hardened atheists hating Christianity, hating religion. You preach the cross of Christ. Undeniable. Their hearts melt. You can see them fighting it. You can see them fighting tears. You see them trying to harden their hearts. You can see them wanting not to listen. Even at the end. I got a standing ovation after preaching on the cross of Christ by atheists because they can see the beauty of this gospel message, beauty of the cross of Christ. Even hardened atheists can discern the beauty of the cross. An Iranian student used the word irresistible when giving his testimony of his conversion to Christ. This Iranian student was brought up to read the Koran, say his prayers, lead a good life. He nevertheless knew that he was separated from God because of his sins. When Christian friends brought him to church, encouraging him to read the Bible, he learned for the first time that Jesus Christ died for his sins. He said, for me, the offer was irresistible and heaven sent. And he cried to God to have mercy upon his soul. He said that almost immediately, quote, the burden of my life was lifted. I felt as if a huge weight had gone. With the relief and sense of lightness came incredible joy. 
At last it happened to me. I was free from my past, freed from my sins. I knew that God had forgiven me and I felt clean. I wanted to shout and tell everyone. And this is the message with which we go, with which you send people, and it's our secret weapon. It is a secret to our success in evangelism and global missions. For the church, the final one, the cross is the foundation of, our, of the church's prosperity. Ralph said again, no church will ever be honored in which Christ crucified is not continually lifted up. Nothing whatever can make up for the lack of the cross. Without it, all things may be done decently and in order. Without the cross, there may be splendid ceremonies, beautiful music, gorgeous churches, learned ministers, huge collections, but without the cross, no good will be done. Dark hearts will not be enlightened. Proud hearts will not be humbled. Mourning hearts will not be comforted. Fainting hearts will not be cheered. They may amuse some. They will feed none. A gorgeous banqueting room and splendid gold plate on the table will never make up to a hungry man for the want of food. Christ crucified as God's grand meal of good to man. Whenever a church keeps back Christ crucified or puts anything else in that foremost place which Christ crucified should always have, from that moment a church ceases, ceases to be useful. Without Christ crucified in our pulpits, a church is little better than a dead carcass, a well without water, a barren fig tree, a sleeping watchman, a silent trumpet, a dumb witness, an ambassador without terms of peace, a messenger without good tidings, a lighthouse without fire, a stumbling block to weak believers, a comfort to infidels, a hotbed for legalism, a joy to the devil, and an offense to a holy God. End quote. The cross is the foundation of a church's prosperity. Let me close with why individuals today must stare at the blazing center of the glory of God on the cross. Are you seeking to be saved? Is sin, has sin still? Are you still in your sin, separating yourself from a holy God? Are you still lost in your sins? Are you seeking salvation but you're doubtful if you can find it? If you want to hear, here's an encouragement to you. Draw near to the cross of Christ. His arms are open to receive you. His heart is full of love to you. You want a, you want a demonstration, you want proof, you want evidence that God loves you. God has mercy and compassion for your souls. Consider the cross. Consider the cross of Christ. He prayed for you that day. He knew you by name. Prayed for your soul. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They do not realize the offense that they're committing in the sight of a holy God. If you're seeking 
be saved. Look to the cross. Secondly, for individuals, are you living in any kind of sin? Are you following the course of this world and neglecting your soul? You're lacking motivation. You're finding it. You lack strength to obey. You're burdened by your sins, your guilt and shame. And you lack desire to follow Christ. I call you to look at the cross. See there how Jesus loved you. See there what Jesus suffered for your salvation and for your sanctification. You know, we sin and the price just goes away. We sin and we pray and we f- the sin goes away. But someone paid for that sin for us to be saved. We just confess. It's, it's easy for us. But look at the cross and consider the price that was paid for our sanctification. Surely that love of Christ will melt our hearts. Surely the heat of God's love for us at the cross will pierce our hearts and inflame us to obey Him. Two more. Are you a distressed believer? Is your heart pressed down with trials, difficulties, disappointments? Is your heart overburdened with care? I say to you as well, behold the cross of Christ. And let me quote to you for the last time, I promise. Quote to you, J.C. Ryle. Think whose hand it is that chastens you. Think whose hand it is that measures to you the cup of bitterness which you are now drinking. It is the hand of Him that was crucified. It is the same hand that in love to your soul was nailed to that accursed tree. Surely that thought should comfort and encourage you. Consider who it is that is sanctifying you, purifying you, pruning your heart, pruning your life, chastising you, disciplining you. Consider the hand that is doing that. It is the hand of our dear Lord who hung on the cross. If you're burdened by the weight of trials, sufferings, difficulties, consider the cross. Finally, are you a believer that today longs to be more holy? Where shall we go? I believe that holiness is nowhere learned better than as in Calvary. I believe you cannot look much at the cross without feeling your will sanctified, your taste made more spiritual. As the sun gazed upon makes everything else look dark and dim. So as we look at the cross, the false splendor of this world is darkened. As we taste something sweet, it dulls the taste for everything else. As we taste the cross for ourselves, it dulls our taste buds for all things in the world. May we keep on steadily look at the blazing center of the glory of God, the cross of Jesus Christ.
Oh, the cross is so precious to us. It is beautiful in our sight. It is our treasure, our heart's joy, our heart's delight. Lord, we thank you that you remove the scales from our eyes. You've given us a heart of flesh. It's removing our heart of stone. Giving us ears to hear, our minds to comprehend the glory of our Lord's cross. As we consider the great debt of sin that we owe to you and how that debt was canceled on the cross. As we consider that we stand before you without condemnation because of your son's death. As we consider that it is our only boast in life. Oh Lord, it is our earnest prayer that these truths would be so ingrained in our hearts that it would change the way we live. It will change the way we conduct ourselves at home with our family. Families conduct ourselves at work, at school. It would transform our relationships with our moms and dads, our sons and daughters. It will change our relationships with our fellow believers in the church. It will change what we talk about and how we talk about with one another and with this world. May the cross of Christ be in the forefront of our minds. May we meditate upon it day and night. And um, may the world, oh God, ultimately in the end, um, see the cross of Christ in and through us and give glory to you on your day of visitation. Oh Lord, we pray ahead of time that you will bless our study in these two chapters. May we go to the valley of humiliation. May we go to the valley of the cross and find our, for ourselves that the sweetest fruits are born there. In Jesus' name, 